calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. I told you it was coming, and here it is, the anniversary episode. It's a week late, but I still think it's worth it anyways. Y'all, I've had a crazy month of January, and I am very pleased that it is closing out. I made a post on the podcast Instagram page stories today when I was thinking about this earlier, because this month I've thrown my back out, I've gotten food poisoning, I had a sinus infection, and then last night another incident happened. So I was at a brewery for a Somersault Queen show, Max's Band, and there was this adorable Cane Corso dog that was standing by the stage and looked so sweet and like seemed to be enjoying the music. And I am the type of person that will go up to every dog and every owner. Like I always want to pet your dog, but I also always ask. I'm always like, hey, is your dog friendly? Do they want to be pet? So I went over to the young woman who was the owner of this dog and I asked her and she was like, yeah. And she did, he had a muzzle on this dog. And she did tell me that, you know, he doesn't get along with everybody super, super well. But like, I get it. Like dogs aren't always going to like me. That's fine. Whatever. So this dog actually seemed to like me quite a bit. And I was like, oh, this is really great. And they kind of got a little weird with me for a second. So I was like, "Uh uh-uh, sit. So to help the dog kind of like recognize that I was in charge, they gave me a treat. And so I was like, all right, try to sit. And they sat and I couldn't get the treat through the muzzle to the dog. And I felt so bad and they kept dropping it. So I got down to pick the treat up. And that must have been some sort of signal to this dog, because if they didn't have a muzzle on, I would have had my mouth ripped off. <laughs> um, the muzzle ended up like hitting me really hard right under my nose and kind of tearing that thing that connects your like lips to your gums. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it it really hurts to smile. It hurts to talk a little bit, so I'm not really using my upper lip. I'm a little bit swollen as well, but you can't really even tell because I have the most naturally thin upper lip that you've ever seen. So the fact that it's a little bit swollen probably just makes my lips look a little bit more normal. (laughs) 
So yeah, um, it was interesting. Actually, there's more to that story that I'm going to share because why not? So after this happened, I felt really uncomfortable and I was kind of awkward. And I found out that the dog's name is Lucifer. Fucking of course, right? And I got kind of embarrassed and like didn't want to make the owner feel bad or whatever. So I just kind of like shuffled away and like went over to Max and his dad and told them what happened. And like as I was explaining it, the pain started setting in and my mouth started throbbing and my face started tingling. And I was like, oh, fuck. And I started crying and I was like, no, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I'm in a public setting. So I like book it out the door, make a right around the corner so that there's no people like really around that can see me crying. And all of a sudden this woman comes up to me. She's got to be in her early 20s, really young. And once she approaches me and looks at me, she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, but no, I can't stop crying. Oh, side note, I also have my periods. That's probably also why I couldn't make myself stop crying. But she was being so sweet And we talked for a little bit and it was very comforting to have someone around. And I said, thank you. And she was like, well, actually, I was over here to sell you weed. (laughs) No, she's like trying to sell me these like wax dipped joints, which like that sounds fantastic. I would love to smoke one of those, but I'm not buying weed from a stranger on the street in downtown Los Angeles, even if you are like a nice young lady, young woman, whatever. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not doing that. And so I made my way back inside and like literally every time anyone looked at me and like saw that maybe my eyes were a little bit red or whatever, I would immediately start crying again. And I'm thankful that I have friends that can kind of see past that and recognize that like I'm okay, I'm in a little bit of pain, but let's just kind of like move on. And my friend Christine was just like so sweet and hugging. She's a speech therapist for kids and she just turned that like speech therapist voice on at me. And I was like, Christine, don't do this, you motherfucker. Oh my God. Um, So I survived. It's fine. I woke up with the swelling that I had mentioned earlier, and it fucking hurts a lot. I've got like a a good black kind of dot on the inside of my mouth from where all the blood has clotted. So hopefully, you know, they say that mouths heal rather quickly. Hopefully mine will be fine. And yeah, enough about that. Let's get into the purpose of this episode. So I want to take you all the way back to 2018 when you first heard the very first episode of Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, which we titled Expose Your Pig. And in that episode, you know, this was like we didn't really know what the setup of the show was going to be, how it was going to go. We had a topic and knew what we wanted to talk about, but like I don't remember having the amount of notes that I do now. I don't remember having the level of skill in research then that I do now. So thinking about that episode, especially because it's one of the most listened to episodes being the first one, I'm like, I would really love to go back and re-research everything that we did and take it a step further and also kind of talk about how far we've come within the last five years since the Me Too movement really began. One of the main resources that Keegan and I used was a 2017 Time article about the Silence Breakers, which focused on women from all different walks of life and backgrounds who had been either raped, abused, sexually assaulted by someone in power or, you know, wasn't believed. And they had spoken out during this time of the Me Too movement and they were chosen as Time's People of the Year. So I started 
from that base point and then moved my way out. So I'm going to be referring to that article a lot because with every new topic, I kind of went back to that article as a jumping point for my research. I also want to give a massive trigger warning. This episode will be discussing sexual assault, harassment, abuse, and rape. Please listen with caution. If you or anyone you know is suffering from sexual abuse, please get in touch with Rain. That's Rain with two N's by going to their website at www.rainn.org, where you can chat with someone online or call someone to help you at 800 656 4673 or 800-656-HOPE. I will also be attaching other resources provided by the RAIN website for more information in the show notes. Referring to this Time article, it's strange to think about how differently this kind of article would be received in 2023 versus 2017-2018. Calling out your abusers or exposing your pig was very new just five years ago. In my opinion, it took the unveiling of decades of abuse perpetrated by former film producer Harvey Weinstein that started this whole conversation. And going back to the fall of 2017, when Harvey's allegations were released, the media and public at large wasn't sure whose side they were on at first. On October 16, 2017, one of the accusers, an actress, Alyssa Milano, posted on Twitter, If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem, saying she got the idea from a friend. Suddenly, celebrities were changing their statuses, posting on Twitter and Instagram with the two words, Me Too. I went to all of my socials and shared those words as well, as did an astonishing number of other women who don't have the notoriety of Gwyneth Paltrow, Ashley Judd, or Jennifer Lawrence. Also, way back to July 29th, 2019, I covered the story of Tarana Burke, the creator of the hashtag MeToo. So if you want an in-depth look into its inception, I suggest going back to that one. But I will give a brief history for context in this episode. Tarana first used the phrase MeToo on social media back in 2006 on her MySpace page. MeToo was chosen as a well for those to empower themselves and each other through empathy, solidarity, and strength in numbers by visibly demonstrating how many people have experienced sexual trauma, assault, and harassment, especially in the workplace. This was something that was particularly astonishing to a lot of the men in my life. I had been relatively open about my experiences with sexual assault and sexual abuse and so on with some of my male friends in the past. But during this time, a lot of other women in their lives were also sharing those stories. And I had a lot of really great conversations with those man friends about how eye-opening the Me Too movement was for them because they realized that every single woman in their life has some sort of story to tell when it comes to Me Too. And it was something that I think really shifted the way that a lot of good men think about assault and harassment. And it was a really good time of education for a lot of people who had closed their eyes to this for so long or who hadn't recognized the terrible ramifications of, you know, allowing this sort of rape culture to continue. And I think that a lot of other really good men also learned about how to help be an ally for women and be an ally for those who have been through sexual assault. And I feel like that was another big reason why this movement was really important for a 
broader population rather than just the victims or the women who have experienced the assault. This whole Time article is about exposing your pig, telling the world who your abuser was, what happened, and that's something that I've never really been able to do. I've told, you know, the people that I'm closest to. I've never shared the story in full with my mom that I can remember unless she got me drunk and somehow got me to share this story with her. But it was something that, you know, as I'll explain, was kind of buried in my subconscious for a little bit in a way because of how I had to go about surviving after a specific incident. And part of what I really wanted to bring to this show now that I am on my own is more vulnerability with all of you. Through this process, I've begun to believe that it's important for me to maybe not name names, (laughs) but I think it's important for me to share my story and be really vulnerable and honest with all of you because I know that if you are listening to this show, you or someone you know probably has a very similar story or can relate to different parts of it in some way. I think that it does help me connect with all of you a little bit better and will maybe help you heal in some way as well. So here I go, and I don't know if I will share every minute detail as it is still really painful for me to think about, but while I was in a sexually abusive relationship that went on for about three years, there was one particular incident that, looking back, should have been the clearest sign to leave this person. For the sake of anonymity, I'll be calling my abuser John, which is not his real name, but is still a good enough hint for those who may know him still, so, hmm. It was the summer of 2011, and I was still 18, but my 19th birthday was quickly approaching. I had been sleeping with John for close to five or six months, I would say, and it was incredibly casual. John and I were also really good friends with another guy in my class from Mexico whose name was Jose, also a fake name. And one day we decided to go to Jose's house to watch the movie Taxi Driver, as John and I would be performing a scene from the film in class. I was to play the role originated by 12-year-old Jodie Foster, who played an underage sex worker who was saved by the fully grown Robert De Niro. John was to play De Niro's character. And beyond the actual incident, so much about doing this scene was so wrong in hindsight. The glorification of overly sexed minors by having an adult play the role seems really icky. Not that a 12-year-old should be reenacting the role either. But the scene was also directed by my teacher, let's call him JR, who used to work in porn. I don't know exactly, I think I heard he was like a fluffer, so he would kind of like be there for the beginning, but then like not fully partake in the sex stuff. There was no way I was about to Google it and find out. That would be disgusting. He was a gross old man. And the set for the actual shoot, because it was like a final scene situation, so it was almost like everyone else was acting as crew to help out with your scene and film it, so on and so forth. So we had to go looking for different like authentic locations or whatever, and we found this pay-by-the-hour motel in Studio City, and the manager was super, super sketchy at the hotel, and he kept popping his grubby head in to make sure that we weren't actually shooting adult content, as we hadn't paid the fee for that. Yeah. When I got into that disgusting motel room, I laid my fleece blanket and stuffed animals across the filthy bedspread and pretended I was anywhere else but there for the entire day. 
Not to mention my teacher slash director and John kept telling me to roll my little shorts higher and to tighten my corset and then walk up and down Ventura Boulevard. That's totally fine. Like I said, this wasn't even the day of the assault, but I had to add it all in because I think this whole situation is fucked. Back at Jose's house, all three of us laid on Jose's bed to watch the movie. Now, back in high school, I would often pile onto a guy friend's bed with groups of people to hang out or even take a quick nap together, and I never felt unsafe in those situations. Plus, I was with John, which felt like I had some sort of security as well. I expected him to take care of me. Now, this is when we get into the hard stuff. Soon after the movie started, John began touching me, with Jose right on the other side of me. I asked him to stop repeatedly. And he would only do it more, so I gave up. Then he invited Jose to join. I said no, but Jose didn't seem to notice. I had one hand in my pants and another under my shirt, and I just laid there, completely paralyzed, until they were done. I don't know the length of time. When I saw an out, I left through the door in the bedroom that went to the outside with my pack of cigarettes and a lighter, only to find that Jose's brother had invited a group of people over to party in the backyard. I wiped the tears off my face and plastered on a smile. I walked up to the group of other smokers and lit up. Afterward, I went back to the bedroom, this time sitting on the floor, and we finished the movie. After I shot the taxi driver scene, we were on to choosing new scenes for our stage productions that we were doing at the end of the year. Just like in middle school gym class, I was picked last and ended up having to work with Jose for the rest of the semester after the abuse happened. The scene that we would eventually choose for the final performance was a really funny and probably really politically incorrect scene, (laughs) but before we did that, our teacher chose a scene where we were going to be husband and wife. There was a fight in the scene, but there was also some loving moments between the husband and wife, but every time Jose got near me or touched me, I would lose it. I even hit him a few times. My teacher kept me after class one day, telling me that if I continued with this behavior, that I would be considered difficult to work with. I told him that something had happened with Jose and I, which made me uncomfortable to work with him. And the teacher told me that we won't always like our scene partner, so deal with it. I had already forgiven John in my mind for the whole thing, as I was still trapped in a relationship with him and convinced myself of his innocence because I mentally had to. Jose, on the other hand, was much more difficult to forget. We did our comedy scene together, and I pushed my feelings and memories down further and further. We spoke about it once, and I told him I didn't like it. He said he felt horrible and apologized, and told me that because John had invited him, he felt like it was okay. It didn't seem to matter that I had said no. Fast forward to the winter of 2012, and I'm in my second residential treatment program for my anorexia, And my therapist, Lindsay, asks me why I have such an aversion to chips, particularly Flamin' Hot Cheetos, which used to be my favorite and are to this day. But I wouldn't go near the things at the time. She asked me why I didn't like them. I said they make me dirty. I don't like to feel dirty. That word must have triggered something in her mind because somehow we started talking about Flamin' Hot Cheetos and I ended that session sobbing on the floor after finally remembering my assault. I had literally completely blocked it out of my mind for months, especially because I was still with John. I spent the next week nearly catatonic, trying to figure out how I could stay with John and accept the fact that he took part in this traumatic part of my life. John would continue to abuse, embarrass, and gaslight me and everyone around me throughout my time in treatment. 
though I think a lot of the staff had their negative thoughts about him. I wish one of them would have made it a point to tell me how they felt, because that would have saved me from another year of his abuse. When I finally left John when I was 21 years old, he lost it. He suddenly wanted to give me everything I'd ever wanted over the last three years. A commitment. He had never allowed me to call him my boyfriend, and nothing was ever clear with where we stood. But once he feared my leaving, he offered a proposal. I turned him down. Again, the reason I wanted to tell my story is the same reason why I shared Me Too back in 2017. Because I think empathy is the best superpower in helping fighting against sexual violence. Let's talk about the silence breakers. The Me Too movement was one of the highest velocity shifts in our culture since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Only nowadays we have social media to better organize and communicate our message. In 1997, Ashley Judd's career was taking off and she was 29 years old. She had appeared on two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, a rite of passage it seems for 90s actors, and was cast in her first starring role in 1993, where she played the title character in Ruby in Paradise, which won awards at the Sundance Film Festival. So it made sense that someone like Harvey would want to meet with the newly minted star about being in one of his films. He invited Ashley to a meeting at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he attempted to coerce her into bed. Ashley managed to escape. In the lobby of the hotel was her dad. Ashley said to Time, I started talking about Harvey the minute it happened. Literally, I exited the hotel room and came straight downstairs to the lobby where my dad was waiting for me because he happened to be in Los Angeles from Kentucky visiting me on set. And he could tell by my face, to use his words, that something devastating had happened to me. I told him. I told everyone. She recalls telling a screenwriter friend of hers who let her in on the open secret that Weinstein was known to behave this way. People would warn others about this to some degree, but this didn't stop Harvey's abuse. Ashley discussed feeling helpless in this situation. She said, Were we supposed to call some fantasy attorney general of moviedom? There wasn't a place for us to report these experiences. Ashley would be the first celebrity to go on record about Harvey in the New York Times. And this Time article makes the point again and again, since at the time we focused so much on celebrity sexual assault, that if it was this hard for a woman with the fame of, say, Ashley Judd to be believed and taken seriously, what chance is there for women without that kind of status or job? And of course, none of this was news at the time either. Women have been dealing with harassment from bosses and co-workers for centuries, They've had with it a fear of retaliation if they spoke out, and of being fired from a job they couldn't afford to lose. Sexual harassment in the workplace in U.S. labor law has been considered a form of discrimination on the basis of sex in the United States since only the mid-70s. The term sexual harassment was popularized after a conscious raising session led by Lynn Farley as part of a Cornell University program on women in the workplace around 1975. She had also written a book called Sexual Shakedown, The Sexual Harassment of Women on the Job, which was published in 1978. In the book, she chronicled the stories of sex discrimination which ruined women's careers. In 1979, feminist author Catherine McKinnon defined sexual harassment in her book Sexual Harassment of Working Women as the legal issue it is today. The United States law recognizes two forms of sexual assault— 
quid pro quo sexual harassment, which means an employee is required to tolerate sexual harassment in exchange for employment, a raise, or job benefit or promotion. The other being hostile work environment, which will come a little bit later which is sexual harassment in the workplace, which results in an offensive work environment or unreasonably interferes in an employee's work performance. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 also prohibited employment discrimination based on race, sex, color, national origin, or religion, which initially gave women somewhat of a leg to stand on in going up against their harasser. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's regulations of 1980 defined sexual harassment and stated it was a form of sex discrimination prohibited by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Civil Rights Act of 1991 then added even more provisions and protections, including expanding the rights of women to sue and collect compensation and punitive damages for sexual discrimination and harassment. The case of Barnes v. Train is known to be the first sexual harassment case in the United States, even though the term wasn't even used at the time. The case involved Paulette Barnes, who worked as a payroll clerk for the Environmental Projection Agency, who had lost her job after denying the advances of a male supervisor. After the case was initially dismissed, they won on appeal in Barnes v. Costal in 1977, where the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia reversed the original findings and ruled that it was sex discrimination for a woman to suffer tangible employment losses for refusing to submit to the requests for sexual favors. Initially, sexual harassment suits revolved around only quid pro quo situations, but in 1986, Meritor Savings Bank v. Vinson legally established the idea of, quote, a hostile environment, which increased an employer's liability and diminished a complainant's burden of proof. Then, in 1991, Anita Hill opened up to the world about how Justice Clarence Thomas had assaulted her, and there were also the court cases of Ellison v. Brady and Robinson v. Jacksonville Shipyards, which made the media headlines. Again, there was a whole Anita Hill episode for you to listen to if you want to go deeper into her story, but the important thing to remember is that Anita's story brought sexual assault and harassment into the major conversation in homes across America. An organization called the National Association of Working Women, which is nicknamed 9to5, usually received about 200 calls a week regarding harassment, and now, after Anita Hill shared her story, they were receiving about 200 calls per day. The organization began back in 1973 as a way to improve working conditions and rights of women in the workforce. It has also effectively used the media to lobby legislators as part of a campaign to draw public attention to sexual harassment in the workplace. In the case of Ellison v. Brady, they introduced the, quote, reasonable woman standard into law, which was later changed to the reasonable worker standard, thankfully. This helped discount the belief that sexual harassment is little more than harmless flirting or all in good fun, with those who complain being seen as overly sensitive or hysterical. Carrie Ellison had been stalked by a co-worker and her complaints to her employers were falling on deaf ears. Her case was unfortunately dropped in district court, but with it being regarded as trivial and an isolated incident. Ellison then took her case to the Court of Appeals, who reversed the decision, saying, We realize that there is a broad range of viewpoints among women as a group, but we believe that many women share common concerns which men do not necessarily share. For example, because women are disproportionately victims of rape and sexual assault, at least reported, 
women have a stronger incentive to be concerned with sexual behavior. Women who are victims of mild forms of sexual harassment may understandably worry whether a harasser's conduct is merely a prelude to violent sexual assault. Men who are rarely victims of assault, at least that's reported, may view sexual conduct in a vacuum without a full appreciation of social setting or the underlying threat of violence that a woman may perceive. We cannot say in a matter of law that Ellison's reaction was idiosyncratic or hypersensitive. We believe that a reasonable woman would have had a similar reaction. Although there had been new laws and other laws had been changed to help protect people go up against their abusers legally, societally, people still didn't feel that they were safe enough to expose who would hurt them, especially when there is a power imbalance. I learned that there's actually something called power harassment, which I had never heard that term before, which is a form of harassment in the workplace in which someone in a greater position of power uses that power to bully or harass a lower ranking person. In the Time article, they interviewed hotel workers who discussed the harassment they faced from guests. One of the women, Juana Malara, worked as a hotel housekeeper for decades. She said that she and her fellow housekeepers don't complain when guests expose themselves or masturbate in front of them because they fear losing their jobs. Juana told the reporter one story of when she was cleaning and, quote, felt the pressure of someone's eyes on her as she worked. When she turned around, a man was standing in the doorway, blocking the cleaning cart with his erect penis exposed. She then yelled at the top of her lungs, scaring him into leaving the room, and locked the door behind her. She said, nothing happened to me that time. Thank God. Another woman, Crystal Washington, worked as a hospitality coordinator for the Plaza Hotel, which was her dream job. She was so excited to have this position, until a co-worker began making crude remarks to her, like, I can tell you had sex last night, and groping her. One of these incidents was even caught on camera, but management still didn't properly respond. Side note, why are men like this? I know, not all men, whatever, but you don't hear about women doing and saying this stupid shit. John, when we were first starting to sleep together, would make really uncomfortable comments to me in class, and I'm only going to share one of the comments because the other ones are so gross that I'm not even going to like repeat the things that I remember him telling me. But one time in a movement class, I remember him like essentially saying that he could tell I was getting my period, and I'm not even going to go into why he knew that. But, um, oh, so gross. And it grossed me out at the time, but he would also make really gross sexual comments under his breath to me. And it even grossed me out at the time, but, you know, I, <laughs> I let a lot of things wash off my back during that time, let's just say that. And I also feel like I didn't know that men weren't supposed to talk to me that way. He acted like he cared for me, and he said that he did. And he also said that he was the only one who ever would. So I took the comments and had to justify them in my head that this was what an adult sexual relationship looks like. It is not. Crystal Washington and six other female employees then filed a sexual harassment suit against the hotel, but she couldn't afford to leave her job while the lawsuit was going on, so she had to face the man she accused and the ones who didn't support or believe her every single day at work. Crystal told ABC News in 2017, Leaving was not an option for me. I feel like they should leave, not me. I haven't done anything wrong. I wasn't able to find the results of this lawsuit anywhere online, but I hope that Crystal and the other women received justice and have healed from their traumatic experience at work. They deserve to feel safe. 
So along with the people that are more like you and me, Time also interviewed a lot of celebrities. One of those celebrities was Taylor Swift. On June 2nd, 2013, on her third concert tour, Taylor attended a pre-show meet-and-greet organized by KYGO Radio before the concert she had planned in Colorado. It went on like a usual meet-and-greet where fans could come up to say hello, give a hug, and take a picture. One of these people who approached her at the meet-and-greet was a radio employee and DJ at the time, David Mueller, and his then-girlfriend who also worked for the radio station. Taylor alleged that when the photo was being taken of the group, Mueller reached under her skirt and grabbed her ass. Immediately afterward, Mueller and his girlfriend left the room, and Taylor told her mother, tour manager, the photographer, and members of her security team what had transpired. Her security team approached Mueller and had him removed from the event, and he was terminated by KYGO shortly after they conducted their own investigation into the event. Mueller then sued Taylor for defamation in 2015, claiming he had never done what Taylor accused him of and alleged that as a result of her claims, he wrongfully lost his job, his public image was tarnished, and he had been unjustifiably banned from any future Taylor Swift concerts. The suit read, The contention that Mr. Mueller lifted up Miss Swift's skirt and grabbed her bottom while standing with his girlfriend in front of Miss Swift's photographer and Miss Swift's highly trained security personnel during a company-sponsored VIP backstage meet-and-greet is nonsense, particularly given that Miss Swift's skirt is in place and is not being lifted by Mr. Mueller's hand in the photograph. Mueller was asking for $3 million in lost income, which it sounds absolutely ridiculous to me, and also claimed that it wasn't him, but someone else who had groped Taylor, and he was falsely accused. Taylor filed a countersuit for battery and assault, and in it she expressed that she was completely aware of who had assaulted her. She also demanded a jury trial and expressed that she would donate any money she won from the trial to charity organizations that protect women from sexual assault and other violent acts. Although instead of doing that, her countersue would eventually be a very symbolic $1. Taylor was victimized again when she asked the court to keep the photo of the meet and greet with Mueller not made publicly available. However, TMZ leaked the photo in November 2016. Taylor was asked on the witness stand by Mueller's attorneys if she felt bad that he had gotten fired, to which she said, I'm not going to let you or your client make me feel in any way that this is my fault. I'm being blamed for the unfortunate events of his life that are a product of his decisions, not mine. She told time of the moments where she took the stand as fueling her indignation. I figure that if he would be brazen enough to assault me under these risky circumstances, imagine what he might do to a vulnerable young artist if given the chance. Hearing the stories from women who come from all backgrounds and walks of life, from the privileged to the underprivileged, I notice that all of these stories sound the same. There's a pattern. We are all vulnerable as women, no matter what our status Add on top of that any other part of intersectionality, whether it be race, gender identity, sexual identity, and that is what makes these cases appear different to the people listening to them, due to our inherent biases in our society. Tarana Burke said we have to keep our focus on people of different class and race and gender. In fact, those who are often most vulnerable in society, immigrants, people of color, people with disabilities, low-income workers, and LGBTQ plus people, 
are more likely to be treated badly or not believed when reporting an assault. According to a 2015 survey by the National Center for Transgender Equality, 47% of trans people report being sexually assaulted at some point in their lives, both in and out of the workplace. All right, well, this is about time for a brief commercial break. See you in a bit. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine. Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. All right, we're back. So as all of this was going on and women's voices seemed to finally be heard by the media, Donald Trump was campaigning to be president. When the Access Hollywood tape of Trump was leaked in October of 2016, the video being from 2005, we heard some of the most vulgar and disgusting words flow from the mouth of our future president. The Washington Post leaked the video with an accompanying article just a month before the presidential primaries in which Trump is telling TV host Bill Bush, who worked for Access Hollywood, about his attempt to seduce a married woman and indicated that he might start kissing the woman they were on their way to meet. In the video, he says, and this is so gross, I apologize that I have to reread it. I moved on her, and I failed, I'll admit it. I did try and fuck her. She was married. And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some really nice furniture. I took her out furniture. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there, and she was married. Then all of a sudden I see her. She's now got the big phony tits and everything. She's totally changed her look. He added, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. According to a spokesperson from Access Hollywood, there were seven other people on the bus at the time with Bush and Trump. The fact that someone who spoke such horrendous words and so brazenly would be the leader of our country absolutely enraged us all. In fact, this was the reason I wanted to start the show in the first place. We needed somewhere to go and get mad and sad, but also have a place to heal together, and I'm glad that I've made this show happen when it did. Women took to the streets in droves after his election, and at that year's Women's March, wearing pink pussy hats, wearing shirts with Trump's words embossed onto them, no longer hiding behind politeness and fear, but showing the world that the women are angry and we are revolting. Rose McGowan said, We're running out of time. I don't have time to play nice. The Women's March of 2017 was one of the largest in U.S. history and spawned satellite marches across all 50 states and more than 50 other countries. Now, the reason the first episode of this show was called Expose Your Pig was because protesters in France held up signs reading Balance ton pour. Again, after five years of trying to make French happen on this show, it's still not happening, but you get what I mean. And that translates to expose your pig or squeal on your pig, which I thought was poetically genius and still do. In total, 25 women have made allegations of either rape, sexual assault, and sexual harassment against Donald Trump since the 1970s. Among those 25 accusers included his ex-wife Ivana, who made a rape claim during their 1989 divorce litigation. 
Businesswoman Jill Harth accused Trump in 1997 for sexual harassment. And in 2017, Summer Zervos, who had been on the show The Apprentice with Trump, also claimed sexual misconduct allegations against him. Summer filed a defamation suit against Trump merely days before his inauguration, after he publicly disputed her claims and called her a liar. And though Trump was really bad and definitely got things moving, the man that seemed to start it all was Harvey Weinstein. In October 2017, the New York Times and the New Yorker reported that dozens of women had accused Weinstein of rape, sexual assault, and sexual abuse over the course of three decades. Eventually, over 80 women in the film industry eventually came forward accusing Weinstein. Weinstein himself has always remained that he has never had, quote, any non-consensual sex. But rumors of Harvey's, quote, casting couch behaviors circulated around Hollywood for years, and people in the industry have been alluding to it for years, and everyone just seemed to ignore it. And I think that is because up until Me Too, it was somewhat acceptable and even kind of a joke to partake in the whole casting couch type of auditions. When I was young and wanted to be an actress, in film school we would talk about how to protect ourselves or what we would do in that situation. Would we do it to get ahead? No. Maybe. No. My point is that it wasn't taken seriously. The film industry is notoriously filled with creeps, from the top dog Weinstein all the way down to the creepo student directors and acting teachers taking physical and emotional advantage of their students slash talent. And as women, we're supposed to expect this. In 1998, Gwyneth Paltrow said on The Late Show with David Letterman that Weinstein would, quote, coerce you to do a thing or two. In 2005, Courtney Love, my birthday twin, along with Tom Hanks, advised young actresses in an interview, if Harvey Weinstein invites you for a private party in the Four Seasons, don't go. There was even a 2010 article grossly titled Harvey's Girls, which alluded even further to Weinstein's predatory behavior with young actresses. The article reads, every few years, Harvey picks a new girl as his pet. And somehow we read that and did nothing? I can't. There was even a line on 30 Rock, for Christ's sakes, in 2012, where Jenna Maroney's character says, I'm not afraid of anyone in show business. I turned down intercourse with Harvey Weinstein on no less than three occasions out of five. In 2013, when Seth MacFarlane was announcing the nominees for Best Supporting Actress at the Academy Awards, he joked, Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. After the allegations officially came out, Quentin Tarantino said that he had known about Weinstein harassing actresses for decades and had confronted him about it. Well, Quentin, you should have done a hell of a lot more than confront him about it. In a 2015 article, Jordan Sargent wrote in a Gawker article that, quote, rumors of the powerful producer leveraging his industry power for sexual satisfaction, consensual or otherwise, had tended to remain unaired, confined to hushed conversation and seedier gossip blog comment threads. There were, however, journalists that tried to report about Harvey's behavior for years, but no one who alleged assault would ever speak with them on the record. To protect himself, Weinstein portrayed himself as a feminist. He aligned himself with Democratic politicians like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, not to mention the goddamn Clintons, who have been friends with Weinstein for years and would continue to support him even after Hillary's celebrity campaigners, Lena Dunham and Tina Brown, warned her about Weinstein. 
Then finally, in 2015, a brave 22-year-old woman named Amber Gutierrez went to the NYPD to accuse Harvey of touching her inappropriately. The NYPD asked Amber if she would help them in their investigation, and she bravely agreed. This meant Amber would have to meet up with Harvey again, this time wearing a wire, and purposefully put herself in a dangerous situation, all in the hopes of the cops being able to arrest him. This amazing fucking badass woman was able to get Harvey on an audio recording admitting to have touched her inappropriately. Yes, girl, yes! But Amber soon learned what all the women before her had learned— Not only did Weinstein have the public fooled, but he had some really scary people on his side who would threaten and harass his accusers into silence, fearing retribution upon themselves or their loved ones. She also experienced terrible press, with people calling Ambra an opportunist and a liar. And after all this hard work and heartache, the Manhattan District Attorney decided not to file charges against Weinstein, citing insufficient evidence of criminal intent. Fuck off. This was against the advice of the NYPD, who believed they had sufficient evidence to press charges. The New York DA and the NYPD blamed each other for failing to bring the charges, and everyone failed Ambra. Then in 2017, some substantial allegations began to be reported in the New York Times, accusing Weinstein of three decades of sexually harassing and paying eight settlements to actresses and female production assistants, temps, and other employees who worked for his two companies, Miramax and the Weinstein Company. Five days after this report, my man, Ronan Farrow, reported in The New Yorker further allegations and details of the accusations against Weinstein, including many who would decide to go on record for the first time and tell their story, including Ambra. Farrow reported that Weinstein had sexually assaulted or harassed 13 women and raped three. The story of how Ronan was able to finally release this article is truly fascinating. I highly recommend reading or listening to his book, Catch and Kill, which goes into how he was able to get these women to finally go on record, the pitfalls he faced from NBC, who was trying to bury the story, and how Weinstein's goons were after him the whole time. It sounds like fiction, but it's very, very real and a very amazing book. He was able to confirm in his book that Weinstein had, through lawyer David Bowie's, had employed private intelligence agencies called Kroll and Black Cube and private investigator Jack Palladino to spy on and influence the victims as well as any reporters who tried to break the story. And yet they wonder why we don't report. In November 2017, a group of alleged victims released a list of over 100 alleged instances of sexual abuse by Harvey Weinstein. These incidents occurred between the years of 1980 and 2015, and they included 18 allegations of rape. According to their report, this was Harvey's modus operandi. Weinstein would invite young actresses or models into a hotel room or office on the pretext of discussing their career. Then he would demand a sexual favor, which usually included the request for a massage. He would then tell young actresses that he could make them the next Gwyneth Paltrow, telling them that Paltrow had slept with him, so complying with his demands meant stardom. Paltrow had, in reality, rebuffed his demands and did not sleep with Weinstein. Weinstein responded to all of this press by doing his best attempt at an apology, telling the public that he was sincerely sorry for the pain he'd caused and that he was taking a sabbatical from work in order to see a therapist to, quote, deal with this issue head on. 
As I've mentioned in another episode, his consulting lawyer at the time was none other than feminist icon Gloria Allred's daughter, Lisa Bloom, who described him as, quote, an old dinosaur learning new ways. What happened to you, Lisa? She ended her involvement with Weinstein shortly after this, tired of dealing with the negative press, I presume. I hope Gloria was very ashamed of her. Though he apologized, his official statement in The New Yorker from his new attorney said, quote, Any allegations of non-consensual sex are unequivocally denied by Mr. Weinstein. Mr. Weinstein has further confirmed that there were never any acts of retaliation against any women for refusing his advances. Mr. Weinstein has begun counseling, has listened to the community, and is pursuing a better path. Mr. Weinstein is hoping that if he makes enough progress, he will be given a second chance. Over my dead body. Weinstein was tried in February 2020 in the Manhattan Supreme Court, where the jury found him guilty of rape in the third degree and a criminal sexual act in the first degree, but not guilty on three accounts, including two more serious charges of predatory sexual assault. Why? I have no idea. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison on March 11th of 2020. On January 6th, 2020, the L.A. District Attorney announced a separate batch of criminal charges against Weinstein in Los Angeles. He was formally indicted on 11 counts of sexual assault in Los Angeles County, and he was extradited to California for the trial. The trial in L.A. commenced in October 2022, where he was charged with 11 counts of rape, forcible oral copulation, and sexual battery, coming from allegations between 2004 and 2013. He was found guilty of three out of seven charges. Four of the initial 11 were unfortunately dropped. His sentencing has been delayed until February 2023 as his lawyers ask for a new trial. So I'll keep y'all up to date on how that pans out. Overall, Weinstein's case changed the way people viewed victims who come forward. In a survey with Time and SurveyMonkey in 2017, they found that 82 American adults believed that more women are likely to speak out about harassment since the breaking of the Weinstein case, and 85% said they believe women who come forward. Once Weinstein was outed, a domino effect occurred, with major people in the entertainment industry being accused, and it seemed like there was a new one every single day. The list of accusers grew within a month of the Weinstein story dropping, which included the head of Amazon Studios, political analyst Mark Halprin, a former Time employee, Leon Weisseltier? Weisseltier, who was a literary critic, numerous politicians and journalists, and another big one, Kevin Spacey. Actor Anthony Rapp came forward in 2017, saying that Spacey had sexually assaulted him when he was only 14 years old in 1986. Since then, more than 30 men have come forward with accusations of rape, non-consensual groping, and attempted rape of minors. Spacey tried to sway everyone into forgiving him after this story dropped by telling the world that he was gay. And this made a lot of people, including myself, really mad because throughout history, people have wrongly conflated gayness with pedophilia, and by him coming out as gay as a way to excuse his pedophilia in his mind is absolutely disgusting and wrong. Following the wave of accusations, Spacey was dropped by his agency and publicist, fired from House of Cards, and scrubbed from upcoming film projects. Unfortunately, a jury in their trial sided with Spacey, finding that he did not sexually abuse Anthony Rapp, 
And I hate this. Our justice system is not set up to support survivors, whether it be the statute of limitation or the burden of proof being laid upon the victim of something so traumatizing. We are not set up for success. We need to change our legal language and evidentiary needs when considering a victim of sexual assault if we want to appropriately punish predators for their disgusting behavior. I read an article in Psychology Today talking about why women don't report, but both men and women are affected by sexual assault, so I'm going to degender it for you. So, why don't we report? We are too afraid or ashamed to report the experiences at the time of the assault. These experiences create confusion and shock, and this type of trauma may be internalized as a coping mechanism and can take time to make sense of what has happened, much like me in my story. Some don't come forward because they fear a negative and hostile reaction from the public. In the occurrences of sexual assault, according to the article, it is ironically the victim who is held up to scrutiny. Historically, when a woman in particular stands up to accuse a man of assault, she is labeled a slut, or they say she asked for it. The victim will also be accused of lying, having false memories, seeking fame, or chasing after the abuser's money. Ugh. They also fear retribution. Abusers are often in positions of power, and reporting them could lead to a demotion, further harassment, or even dismissal from their job, leaving them with no income. Not even Hollywood actresses are safe from this treatment. One study found that one in five women report sexual harassment. Of these, 80% found that nothing changed as a result, and 16 of those said the harassment worsened when they reported the incident. Abusers will also often threaten their victim with violence if they dare to speak out or that they would ruin their career, a tactic used heavily in Weinstein's case. Another common refrain is that you don't want to drag his name through the mud, and sometimes it's not even the abuser himself that we're thinking of, but how it would affect his family and loved ones as well. Victims will often become the fixers of the situation simply by staying quiet. However, we know that a predator has damaged their own reputation by the way they behaved, but women are also told that we are at fault for a man's sexual desires toward us, or that it's our duty to supply these favors for them. I felt sexually brainwashed by my abuser. I had no idea what healthy sex was or what a healthy emotional relationship was either. It took me so long to stop seeing my body as something that was owed to men, or some form of currency for my need to be loved. The sex I had for the first few years of being sexually active was anything but loving. I have a hard time even calling it sex, when many times we were together, there was some time where I felt uncomfortable and alarm bells rang in my head, which I surpassed. My teachers all loved him, his friends spoke so highly of him, and he really seemed like a larger-than-life character to me, and much more believable than I would ever be. Also, in my case, there is just one or two incidents that I can think of that could have even been reported in the first place. I can't imagine anything legally happening to my abuser if I were to come forward. Lastly, not reporting is often seen as evidence of innocence. We as a society have a long way to go in understanding how trauma develops in the brain, how certain coping mechanisms keep us from realizing our abuse, and recognize the fear in every victim who tries to come forward only to be further bullied, harassed, and victimized. The Time article wraps up in its final section saying this, It wasn't long ago that the boss chasing his secretary around the desk was a comic trope, a staple from vaudeville to primetime sitcoms. There wasn't even a name for sexual harassment until just over 40 years ago. 
But hopefully, following the shift in thinking caused by the Me Too movement, that trope will no longer be funny or accepted in any sort of media, in any sort of business, or anywhere. Again, if you or anyone you know is suffering from sexual abuse, please get in touch with Rain. that's Rain with two N's, by going to their website at www.rainn.org, where you can chat with someone online or call someone to help you at 800-656-4673 or 800-656-HOPE. Also be sure to look at the resources attached in the show notes. All right. Happy five years, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and it was educational for you. It did feel like a a great relief for me, honestly, to be very, very honest and open about it. Although it always feels different when I'm talking to myself into a microphone rather than thinking about the fact that it is now out in the ether for anyone to hear. But I'm just going to pretend that it's just me talking to myself, staring at my computer, And I hope that you all got something out of this episode. I think it was really interesting to look back on even five years' time and see how different we treat victims of sexual assault, how much more information we have, Um, the resources I feel like are better, and I feel like women are continuing to show up and stand up for themselves more and more in these situations. And all victims, I should say, not just women. I'm not trying to be exclusive here. Victims as a whole are starting to be believed more and more, in my opinion. And because I was gendering it again just now, I want to make it clear that men are often the victims of sexual assault. It is not just Kevin Spacey and this male actor. It does happen all of the time. But because of our very patriarchal society, it's even more difficult for men at times to be able to come forward with abuse, particularly when another man was the abuser. And that goes into you know the history of homophobia that we have in this world and so on and so forth. And that is another whole conversation. But I hope that you are all doing well after this episode and know that I love you all so very much. All right, that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.